0: Log Talk
1: Radio. I
2: stroll through
3: the picture.
0: What I've left
1: behind,
0: You won't again. I'm locked I'm up like in memories They all intertwine The memories
1: living
0: In my mind I know tomorrow Cause that dawn come You will never know.
2: Well, good evening, everyone, and I want to welcome you to the NASCA Stop Child Abuse Now Scan Blog Talk Radio Show. NASCA stands for the National Association of Adult Survivors of Child Abuse, and my name is. Kim Lakin. I am your host this evening, and my beautiful co-host this evening is Penelope. Welcome, Penelope. Always glad to have thank you on. Thank you. Kim. Good to and be here. We, um, yeah, thank you. And we are excited to introduce our, our special guest this evening, but first we um, have to talk a little bit about NASCA. So we, uh, here at NASCA, we have a, a single purpose and that is to address issues related to childhood abuse and trauma, including sexual assault, violent versus physical abuse, emotional traumas and neglect, and we do so with only two goals. One, by educating the public, especially as it's related to helping society get over its taboo of discussing childhood sexual abuse, (CSA), presenting facts showing child abuse to be a pandemic, worldwide problems, that affects everyone, and two, by offering hope and healing through numerous paths and providing many services to adult survivors of child abuse and information for anyone who's interested in the many issues involving prevention, intervention, and recovery. And we are on scan number 3324 this evening, and we would love to have you be a part of our panel if you'd like to call in and um, join us. We've got a growing panel here, which is nice to see. Our guest call-in number is 646-595-2118, and when you call in, Penelope will meet you on the back line and ask if you have a question or if you're just here to listen, so we'd love to have you join us. Um, So again, scan number 3324 this evening, and our tonight's special guest is Sylvia Rockwell. Sylvia has dedicated her career to working with children and youth with emotional and behavioral disorders, as well as those at risk settings. She has worked in the wilderness, therapeutic camps, in classroom settings, and at the university level. In addition to her professional work, she is a mother, a grandmother, and a wife. And through her own personal work with therapists to address
1: the impacts
2: of trauma during her developmental years, and her experience with students over the decades of professional work and research, she knows the risks of emotional abuse. The beginnings of her professional work were motivated by childhood and adolescent experiences during her developmental years. Invisible shrapnel, the legacy of emotional abuse, is part of the ongoing commitment to providing information to the general public about what constitutes emotional and verbal abuse long-lasting, long-term effects over the developmental years, Um, resilience through findings that clearly point to the power of um, the community in facilitating self-right potential within young people. So, she's also a member of the National Alliance of Mental Illness, and um, she is available on Facebook, and then she also has um, sylviarockbell.com. So we are going to go ahead and welcome Sylvia, and we're so happy that you are here this evening. We are going to bring you on the air. Bring her on. (laughs) There we go. Okay, there's Sylvia. Hey. Hello, welcome. Sorry about that. My My computer <laughs> went dead, right? As I was going to introduce you, you know, it are dead. So, hey, welcome. We're so yeah, proud to be in here.
4: Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having yeah. me. I really do appreciate it. Um, right. Shall I just jump right in now?
2: Yeah, so we have a growing yes. panel, just so you know, and that's wonderful. It, did you have people calling to support you as well?
4: I did ask you know, folks if they agent. wanted you to join, so I'm glad to, I'm glad people have. But um uh, uh, yeah. I wanna make one comment if it's okay about my website, mm-hmm. so dot It's not it's available online and you can download anything that there are free PDF handouts on dealing with power struggles and difficult parents and resilience and a variety of topics, but none of the links are live in the sense that you can get a hold of me through that website. You'll have to use the um, email that I provided to NASCA, and I'd love to hear from folks if you have anything you'd like to share or add to the discussion and didn't get an opportunity to tonight. So yeah. with, that said, with that said, I'll share a little bit about how things started with me in terms of even being aware that something wasn't right. Um, my parents divorced when I was about six and separated when I was about five. And up until that point, there was a lot of arguing and sometimes physical aggression between the two of them. Um, throwing pots and pans and that went from one room and hit the wall in the other room. Um, just drama. And at first my brother and I would kind of giggle and run up the stairs and try to stay out of line, the line of fire. But as things heated up, we always went in the bedroom and hid. Um, it was, it was scary and yet during those moments we weren't, we weren't hurt. Um, but, As I got older, well, actually at the age of four, I did something that my mother found unacceptable. I still don't remember what it was. But she sent me upstairs to my room. And for whatever reason, I knew I was not to yell at her no matter what. But for whatever reason, I just became terrified that I would never be forgiven for the rest of my life. And four-year-olds do have a tendency to see everything in Absolute turns. So I kept screaming, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. All I wanted was some sign that I was forgiven. And she kept screaming back, shut the hell up. And I didn't take the note. And eventually my body just couldn't handle the stress and I vomited. Well, she heard me vomit. And I knew then I was in mortal danger. So I got very quiet and put my back up against the wall. I had nothing on but my little cotton panties. And I thought, if I'm really, really quiet, maybe, maybe she'll forget about me and and I'll be safe and I can clean it up before she sees it. But after a little while, I heard Dad's belt being slapped against the spindles on the railing of the stairs. And before I knew it, she was in the bedroom. She came over to me, grabbed me by one arm, swung me around in circles, um, beating me with the belt. And I was so terrified. I knew that if I wet my pants at that point or soiled them, I believed I would be killed. So I disassociated. I found myself watching all of this from the ceiling of the bedroom. And just trying not to wet or soil my pants, though I was numb. I just felt numb, which was also terrifying. When she ran out of breath, she threw me down in my bonnet and slapped me on the head with the belt and told me to clean it up. So when she went downstairs, I did. But I never called out again. I never called out for help. I never called out for forgiveness. And I didn't believe that... Forgiveness was possible. I was four years old, and I had used up all the grace in the world by that age. Um, Another belief she had, though, was that if she was kind to one of us after a punishment, that it would undo the punishment. So for the remainder of the day, I was shunned. I was not looked at. There were no smiles, nothing. It was like I didn't exist. So that was the beginning of me being aware that, first of all, I didn't know the word disassociation, but something was wrong. Um, And the disassociation I've learned as an adult is more, more easily occurs with children. As I grew, mom explained to me when I was 16 that she, and she was telling me this as a way to say, this is what you must do when you're a mother. You must figure out what works best for each of your children in terms of parenting. And she explained some of her strategies with the other children in the family, but with me, she said, the thing that works best for you is shaming you. If I can make you feel bad about yourself, I can get you to do anything. I was 16 at the time, and I knew she did that, but I had always given her the benefit of the doubt. And to have her tell me to my face that that was a plan all along, and she was proud of it, was almost more than I could handle. But I was well-practiced at that age. I did not show emotion. I did not cry. I did not say a word. I just nodded my head and understanding. And when it was safe, I asked to be excused. And I went to my room and covered my face with a pillow and just kind of silently screamed into a pillow because that's all I could safely do. Um, That's not everything, but that gives you kind of an idea of the pressure cooker I lived in. And on top of it, I was Uh the oldest, so I was expected to care for all the other children, cook, iron, um, whatever. I was, well, put it this way, A neighbor asked my mother one time how she kept the house so clean and asked if she had a maid. And my younger siblings, who were only uh, three and four at the time, nodded their heads and said, yes, Sylvia. (laughs) So it's not funny, but I have to laugh, you know, out of the mouths of babes. Yeah. I
2: mean,
4: you're so tiny.
2: (laughs) You're four years old. You just... Oh gosh,
1: I'm so sorry that
2: all happened to you. That just yeah,
4: not it's,
1: right.
4: It's just not right. How many other siblings? No, well. I had a brother who was um, born into my first family, mom and my bio, our biological dad. And then our mother uh, remarried when I was eight, and there were two more children. So. I was almost 10 and almost 11 years older than the babies. I still sometimes refer to them as babies, even though they're fully grown. (laughs) But they were the babies I took care of, and uh, I loved them. And I derived a lot of um, nurturing in the sense that as I rocked them and loved them and cared for them, I felt loved in return. Uh, they were my family. And, you know, at times, some of them, have, a few of them have expressed sorrow that, and even guilt that I was put through that on their behalf. And they said, don't, you saved me. That connection that you saved me. So don't for a minute feel bad because number one, wasn't your choice. It was the parent's choice. And number two, I don't know what I'd have done without you. So um, that's a little bit about my story. And it also is a huge motivator and always has been professionally. I had, my mother's parents were orphans. They grew up in an orphanage at a time when those were truly horrible places. Um, They were sexually, emotionally, and physically abused. And they carried that on to their eight children. So, you know, I I had compassion early in life for what they had gone through, for what my mother had gone through. I honestly believed at the age of six that if I could love her enough, she would know that she was lovable and some of her anger would abate. And I did try. (laughs) I wasn't successful, but I did try. Um, but I'd like to leave my story for a minute or a few minutes and talk about what I've learned as an adult and why this driving force that started in childhood continues to be so important. Would that be a good time to do that?
2: Yeah, I was wondering um, real quick, though, would you mind... um, quickly if I find out what there's a gal named Tammy who's on the line and she has her hand raised would you mind if uh-huh. I see why she raised her hand and I don't know do you know what Tammy
4: oh please I'd, I'd love to hear from her okay I didn't okay,
2: know my I hand was raised. oh it is. <laughs> your <laughs> hand is raised so yeah I wanted to see what it, if, if you want to add a question or something so you don't really have anything. All right. Uh,
4: just um, I'm loving this. This is great. Okay. Thank but you. I, yeah, Thank I didn't you know my hand was raised. Sorry about that.
2: <laughs> That's okay. No problem. Thank you. We,
4: no, uh, um, you're here. <laughs> okay. And I hope she doesn't get mad at me for outing her, but she's my sister. <laughs> I was gonna oh, say wonderful. that, but I didn't think I should. <laughs> And she well, yeah, she pulled me through some really rough um, some really rough times. Yeah. Um. So thank you, Tammy, for being a lifeline. Um but as oh, I was saying, my motivation for writing about this, talking about this, um, reaching out to anyone who is interested in this topic is that the prevalence of child abuse in this country is pretty high according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, about one in seven children in this country experience abuse at some point in their lifetime. Um, It's not always ongoing, as it was for me, but one trauma is enough (laughs) and too much. Um, And here's the part that struck me, because most of my abuse was verbal and emotional after the disassociation. Um, I was so well traumatized by that that it didn't take much to get me under control. Um, But anyway, only 6% of the abuses that are reported are verbal or emotional out of all the abuses. And I find that scary. I understand it. But I find it scary because there are many children like me who are out there suffering and often suffering silently, often not noticeable unless someone has training and knows that the behavior they're seeing is not developmentally appropriate. I had a few teachers along the way who understood my behavior for what it was. And it's because I didn't ask for help. I didn't cry. I didn't scream. I didn't talk back to adults. I was so terrified to do anything but behave that I was beyond reason um, on the lookout for whatever an adult wanted. And I would sometimes anticipate before my mother even realized she wanted or needed something and bring it to her. Um, That's not normal. (laughs) But another fact I'd like to share is that According to Brenner, who did a study in 2019, children who are traumatized and abused, because it doesn't go away, the effects do not go away, end up costing us $1.33 trillion annually. That's not a small sum. And it's because of schooling, and educating. Children who are like the ones I worked with really have a difficult time in a general ed environment and are often so disruptive. uh, And not all children who are suffering are disruptive, but the ones I worked with were. And they can't be in a general ed environment. No one else will learn anything. So you've got special schooling, you've got counseling, you've got juvenile justice because they're out to get in trouble, Um, you have prison later. And poor outcomes often in the work world, poor outcomes in interpersonal relationships as they grow. They have health issues related to um, the impact of abuse on the physical body, obesity, diabetes, heart problems, Um, a whole list of health issues and a two- to four-fold increase in smoking, sexually transmitted diseases and having multiple sexual partners which, again, can lead to health problems. Also, children who have been abused um, and I'm sure I'm speaking to the choir here are more apt to be abused in the future. Uh, my husband used to tell me that my psychological alarms were broken, that I wasn't always good at knowing when I was in danger in spite of the fact that I was quite often hyper-alert. Um, but I was only hyper-alert for indications of my history of trauma, not for how the real world works. So there's that. Um As far as symptoms of verbal abuse, you'll see children who withdraw and are quiet, like I was. Um, More than once over the years, the teachers would say, your brother's so cute, what happened to you? And they weren't talking about physical attributes, though Chris is adorably cute. Um, I just didn't talk. I wasn't funny. I was very serious. I was in a Invisible straitjacket, and I did as I was told when I was told, and that was it. And they couldn't understand how I had such a outgoing sunny brother. But that's one, one sign. Depression, and depression in children and adolescents can sometimes look like aggression. Not always the child over in the corner crying. Uh, low motivation or interest in anything hypervigilance. I used to work with a young man who, <laughs> he had a history of verbal, emotional, and physical abuse. And no matter what he was doing, even if he was playing, his left arm would be curved and swing back and forth across his body as a way to protect his personal space. And he wasn't even aware he was doing it. Um, just something he would learned to do to protect himself. Very clingy behavior um, with any adult, not just with a parent. Bullying. A lot of the little ones we see who bully are just a copy of the adults who've bullied them. Defiance with anyone in authority. In fact, I wrote a book years ago called You Can't Make Me. (laughs) Because that was the most frequent thing kids said to me when I was trying to help them. And my response was always, good, because okay. I'm not going to try to make you. <laughs> <laughs>
2: wow. Um, How many and then books have you theory. written?
4: Well, have you the written older titles. You? Yeah, I wrote, You Can't Make Me. Um, that's about working with children with emotional and behavioral disorders in a school setting. Um, tough to reach, tough to teach. And a monograph on how to teach responsibility to children who have not had that well modeled in their lives. Um, and there's two editions of each of the other books I I wrote. So sometimes people count them as two, but, um, you know, four altogether instead of just two. But this one, the oh, wow. difference this time. Yeah, the difference this time is invisible shrapnel is for everybody. It's for the neighbors. It's for grandparents and cousins and anyone. It's for any adult who knows a child, who loves a child, who encounters children or youth. When I say children, I'm not leaving out the teens by any means. But knowing, first of all, what abuse is, what it looks like, what it sounds like, the kinds of damage it does, particularly with the verbal and emotional that often gets ignored. Um, And having adults just in general in a community know that I don't have to take it personally if a kid snubs me or says you can't make me or any other thing that... Adults would typically not like. There's another way to respond besides that kid needs a beating. And yeah. I get in trouble sometimes when I've done talks because there are folks who believe that a beating is just exactly what kids need when they're rude, but I always tell them no. <laughs> in the long run, it's not effective. Even if in the short run, it gets you what you want. Um, yeah, yeah, emotionally,
2: so, it's just right.
4: now. so um, that's the purpose of the book. It's not self help though I do talk about things that helped me and people who helped me um but it's not for somebody to read and try to heal themselves, except in one area, and that's and we'll talk about that in a minute. Everyone needs to know about the resilience research. Um, everyone, because that's where I got my hope initially. I started to read about what makes people resilient and not resilient, and all kinds of light bulbs started going on. So there is a section in the book on resilience. Would you like me to talk about that now, or...
2: Well, if you don't mind, this might be a good time to take a break and see if anybody else on the panel had a question. Um, maybe my – start with my co-host, Penelope. Would you mind if we start here? Sure.
3: Oh, well, thank you, Kim, and thank you, Sylvia. Um, this is Penelope. Penelope and, um, I, first of all, Sylvia, I just want to thank you so much for not only all the work that you do, but, you know, just, just – gifting us with the truth of your own personal history um, from your childhood. And I know how difficult that is. I've, you know, told my story um, on NASCA several times. And um, uh, I know we do it in the spirit of, um, um, you know, helping in the mission of, um, you know, intervention, prevention, and recovery from child abuse with adult survivors. But uh, every time we share our story, I think there's a little bit of a sacrifice there because it's painful to talk about these things. And first of all, I just want to say thank you. Um, and second of all, I just want to say, I, as hard as it is to, to even hear um, you know, the horrific things that um, you know, one experiences in childhood when we're adult survivors and you shared with, um, with us um, when you dissoci- uh, dissociated, um, when your mother was um, punishing you with, with the black belt, um, and I was nodding my head because um, I, I have a very, very similar story of the physical abuse resulting in uh, being so severe that I completely dissociated from my body and also watched my beating from the ceiling. Um, so mm-hmm. I could completely re- relate to what you were saying and I was nodding mm-hmm. my head. Um, and I think it's so important to share um, the experience of a child, and to really define association, because um, my sister reported after the incident um, was over, a very severe physical beating where I was almost killed and unrecognizable to mm. look at. She said mm. I looked, I wasn't crying, I looked like I was in a daze. So yes. if this is a, the physical, you know, if, if the bruises and they, you know, this phys- is. Uh, my face, you know, whether the, whether the, the, the beating immediately. So you could, it was very, very visible, but had it not been visible, had a neighbor or even the policeman called and come to the door um, and seeing you or seeing me as a child um, just sitting there in a daze. Right. Um, they would not know what had happened because we are emotionless. And so I think it's important to educate, and, and that's what I'm going to say. Thank you for, for educating um, with your story because um, children present in many, many different ways, and you were talking about that also in the work that you've done in your book. But your example of just what you went through as a child and dissociation, um, I, I think you know, sometimes people don't realize that children – who are very severely abused, even physically sometimes, don't present the way that they think they might. So no, um, I, do, uh, I do appreciate, um, you, you know, you sharing that. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, you know, there is hope um, in healing because here you are on the show and everything that you've done um, to really help children um, heal um, and to educate is um, it's so incredible, and and that is what offers hope to know that that you know with with you know in doing the work, which is hard work, um, we can live um, productive, content lives. So thank you. I just really wish to thank you.
4: Yeah, you know, well, thank you for telling me a bit about your story, and you're absolutely right. And thank you for um, bringing out the you know the climb stopped the minute I was whisked into the air the crying stopped and the crying didn't mm-hmm. start again. You're right. Mm-hmm. You just kind of go into this trance. I don't know any other word to use. Yeah. And I still do it. I, I still do it sometimes, not as mm-hmm. severely. I've learned that, you know, that complete disassociation that's happened to me a few times in my life where I I was looking in the mirror when I was 20, about 20, I could not see myself. All I could see was the four-year-old. And I kept touching yeah. my body. It was frightening. I kept touching my body. Some part of my brain said, that four-year-old isn't you. And I kept touching my body, trying to figure out why I couldn't see myself in the mirror. It was truly frightening. Mm-hmm. But you don't cry. And Lenore Tier wrote a book, um, Too Scared to Cry, And she was studying children who were traumatized. Well, first of all, the children who were on that bus in Chalchilla. And the bus was buried underground. And um, I don't know if you remember that. It was a long time ago. (laughs) 20 years ago, I believe. But um, yeah, and and kidnap victims. They'll show them in doors on security footage. And the kids are just blank-faced. Yeah. And when you're blank-faced, people don't think you need any help. (laughs) Exactly. So, yes, thank you for bringing that out. Um, Because that's another thing I I try to help people understand is not every child who is going through something will throw furniture or call you an F&B or Fight. Um, some of them are just little robots, and they're quiet all the time. Yeah. And one, my father, my biological father, introduced me or said, described me as uh, well socialized. And it was all I could do to not bust up laughing when I saw that. But so now, sometimes when I talk to groups, I say, I am a well socialized, emotionally disturbed child. And people oh, laugh, wow. but it's true. <laughs> it's true. I still have triggers, and I still have to do my work. Um, I'm better, and I live a very full life, and do many fun things, and try to focus on the joy, but there still are triggers. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but um, thank I, you. I have
3: one more question. Um because with, you know, dissociation and, and, again, you know, leaving your body and, and staring down from the ceiling, I've heard that term, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, depersonalization. Um, yes. I heard the term. Yes. And I'm just curious, too, after that uh, event, when you basically split, um, afterwards, do, do you have a lot of memory recall of those years? Um, immediately afterwards. Um, No. (laughs) Yeah, I don't either. I don't either. So I was curious.
4: Yeah, there was a lot going on, and I guess I just chalked it up to that was scary, and so I was kind of out of it for a while afterwards. But, you know, my my dad was my safe haven. My dad was nurturing my biological father very nurturing, very loving, Um, did not treat my questions as stupid, (laughs) Um, treated me as an intelligent being, even though I was a girl. And to lose him was devastating. So Mm. when the separation and divorce occurred, it was very, very hard. And then when I was seven our mother moved us to far away, 1000 and more than a thousand miles away. So I didn't get to see my dad but once a year for two weeks. And oh. I was not allowed to talk about him. Well, if I talked about him, all I heard was how awful he was and a lot of screaming. And so I didn't talk about him. I couldn't keep a picture of him in my room. And after my mother... Remarried, I wasn't even allowed to use my legal name. So I had to hide who I was in public. Um, Mm -hmm. And even when I graduated, this went on until high school graduation, and that's when I first had the opportunity to tell my father. Um, But apparently he had known for a while. My mother died during my senior year and he had known for a while that it he found out by accident because my younger brother forgot to write the correct name. We would be put at the table and told to practice our writing our legal names just before we went on a visit with him so we wouldn't forget. And randomly during the day mom would come up to us and say, What's your name? And we had to remember our legal name. Um but Chris forgot, and he wrote the name where we were being required to use, our stepfather's name. He was our stepfather at the time. So um, there was a lot of, just a lot. Yeah. Sounds like that. Thank you. Sure, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I... Now that's me.
2: Well, we have one more. um, I didn't know if maybe we've got one more caller, and then I didn't know if maybe your sister wanted to talk again too. But um, would you mind if we see if Philip has any questions?
4: Oh, yes, please. Hello.
0: Hello.
2: Hey, Philip. Hello. You're on.
0: Well, Ms. Sylvia, I'm sorry that you had to go through that, but that's all I have to say for today.
4: Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you, fella. Ex- Go ahead. Um, let's open up and just see. I know that there's another person on the line, but it sounds like he just wants to listen in. Thank you, fella. Okay. Um, but did your sister, Tammy, you're on the air as well now. Would, do you have anything else you'd like to say?
4: Hey, Tammy. Uh, just... Hello. 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 Oh um, my! Just it is uh, to me such an honor to know Sylvia. We were not close at all growing up. I was on the other side of the country with our biological father and my mom. Um, we we started becoming close when I had kids, and I did not realize her life had been like this. And uh, for that day to this. I've just watched in amazement as she heals and uses that to help others understand. Love you, girl. I love you too. Thank
2: you. That's beautiful. Thank you, Tammy. That was very sweet. I um, noticed when you were talking with Penelope and talking about the disassociation and hovering over. You know, I never realized that I did that as well until people started talking about it on here, I think. And I don't, I I used to remember thinking that I could fly. It was like, Uh I know I can just hover. up, And I knew like in when I wasn't sleeping or I wasn't in trauma, I would be like, I can fly. You know, I just kind of, Mm -hmm. it was weird. That must have been me trying to, justify or figure out why I felt like I was on the ceiling all the time, you know? <laughs> oh yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's so it's so wonderful that you thought of something as fun as flying or were there negative <laughs> emotions tied to it?
2: Yeah, no, actually not. There wasn't. There was a lot of other other places that there were negative emotions, but I I believe Yeah, I just thought I could fly, and I thought I was special.
1: And and I don't know,
2: looking back on that, you know, some of the instances that I'm thinking about, I I can't tell you that something happened right at that time. But maybe, since I'm Mm -hmm. hearing other people talk about it and, and all of it, how it comes together, that maybe there was something going on exactly when I was flying. So
4: yeah, maybe or maybe you were triggered. I mean,
2: triggered. it can happen
4: when you're triggered.
2: Oh okay, yeah. And uh, my <laughs> my story is similar to Penelope's too, and, and to you. Mine, who um, was basically my my only dad that I knew. My mom and him divorced mm-hmm. when I was three. Um, he was abusive in every way, sexually as well. Mm-hmm. And, um, Mm -hmm. and I, I struggle to this day. There's, there's this residual, (laughs) um, you know, thing going on where my children don't know that life and they didn't know about that, about me growing up because I didn't Mm -hmm. want to share that with them. But, you know, as the years have gone by and I've been in a couple books myself, wrote my testimony and, um, my girls are having a really hard time with that comes down more to, I guess, that I didn't tell them sooner. Now they have kids and I didn't tell them. Later. So I, I'm not sure exactly how that, but I, I can picture in my mind that this is something that's been happening for years. You know, I always felt this way. And I still always feel like I'm the outsider. And even in my own family with the kids that I've raised, because my daughters choose not to try and understand maybe where Mm -hmm. I, you know, where I came from. And so, because they can't, and I get that too. They can't, they didn't have that life. And um, Mm -hmm. that's what I wanted. So, yeah, it's, it's, but it's nice, but not nice to be able to, you know, connect with somebody and um, know that, unfortunately, they went through the same things that you did. Thank
4: you. Right, and I don't think... You know, I don't think it's odd that feeling of not belonging. I have that to this day. Um, yeah, it's it's one of the one of the not very often spoken about um, results of having to hide who you are. And you know, you were hiding who you were. And you can't belong if you can't be who you are. Not belong fully. You can get along. But I've even said to my brother, one of the ones I helped raise, um, one of the babies, he's grown now. But I even said to him one time, I don't feel like I belong. And he said, well, you do. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I don't think <laughs> but, um yeah. You know, the roles and yeah. the yeah. relationships are not, they're not the same as when people don't have all this complicated history they've had to shove aside.
2: Yeah, huh. absolutely. And I did that as well. I was the oldest in my family. So I raised my little brother and I just remember thinking of him as my own little life baby doll. You know, I just right. I took him everywhere okay. with me. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know what, Sylvia? We have a growing panel. There's still people calling in. So mm-hmm. do you mind if I check real quick and see if we have any more questions before you move on?
4: Oh, that's fine. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to hear okay. people. I appreciate you sharing your story, too. Um,
2: well, thank you, Sylvia. I, I appreciate you being on. And, and I know that even as a professional, You've got your own story, and there are, like you said, triggers. There are things that come up all the time. And I think that's right. important for a lot of people to understand is that just because you have gone to therapy and you feel like you're really strong, there could be something, you know, tomorrow that kind of knocks you down and that
4: um, you're going to be
1: – you're going to be yeah, – And I have, have to, to say, it, I was <laughs> Yeah. Go ahead, well, go. I
4: have to say, I was really ticked off when I found out therapy wasn't going to take all the triggers away. I thought that's why I was going to <laughs> right. therapy. And I was like, well, what's the sense in all this? But I have learned to handle my triggers a little better, so that's a good thing.
2: Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> now, I'm with you. I agree with you. <laughs> <If> they <just laughs> tell me all my, my troubles, fix everything. Right. So, um, okay. Well, we have a gal named Callie on the line. And I just okay. To see if I'm going to bring her on right now. And Kelly, you're on the air. Did you have something you wanted to say? It's question? Khalil,
0: and I have something. I have something I want to <laughs> Sorry. say. Um,
2: Sorry. <laughs> it's all right.
0: It's all right. Um, too many people will use. I don't know if I've talked to you about this. I've been on this show before, but too many people will will generalize all youth and say kids are bad nowadays, and they don't use. They'll say it to justify mistreating kids. So, like even mm-hmm. like a situation like child abuse, they'll use mm-hmm. that to justify mistreating kids. And the worst problem about it is, a lot of people you can't talk to them about it because they get get what you're saying all wrong. They get it like they're, they they want to they bring bringing up something that they say that they understand. They say that I understand you, but they're talking about something completely different. And um
1: true.
0: true. Yeah, not all. Uh, n no, there's a lot of bad kids nowadays, but not all kids are bad, and not every situation, we can use that to justify whatever we do to them. And that's what well, society is Well, I don't even
4: – yeah, because of what I did for a living for decades, I've never met a bad kid, I have to tell you the truth. I've met children right. who were hurting. I've met children who were confused. I've met children who felt unlovable and that right. no one wanted them. But I've never met a bad child. Right. But,
0: the, but but when people use that to, to say to to justify anything, it become they become kind of callous.
4: They do. They do and they think that it's okay, but I think that comes from their misunderstanding of what's going on and that's one of the big motivations for my writing and speaking when I have the opportunity. Because and not, I, not, I find it
0: hmm? sorry, I cut you off.
4: That's okay, I was just going to say, I find that when I can get through the their hearts soften, and they begin to see things differently, but you have to get them at the heart because the yeah. intellect won't won't let them back down <laughs> it might you know
0: be I mean? that might be why when I talk about it, they can they bring up other things because it's like I talk to people about it, and they bring up things that are not. They say things, they act like they know what I'm talking about, and they don't. And that's yeah. the worst part about it.
1: It's It's
0: like I. you understand what I'm talking about. You understand that not all youth, just because there's a stigmatism on youth, it doesn't mean that we should accept whatever happens to them. But it's like yeah. a lot of people, I, they don't understand. They bring up something completely different. And that's very frustrating.
4: It's very frustrating. And it's also frustrating when... I hear things like, um, well, they can't use their abuse as an excuse. No, we're not talking about excusing it. We're talking about understanding it and what that person needs to heal. People get all of that mixed up too. Have you experienced yeah. that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. um, there was a girl named, what's her name, um, Hillary, I Hillary, um, forgot her last name, but she was in Texas. She got abused by her father. Mm-hmm. And you will not believe how many people use how bad use use the the kids nowadays a bad excuse just to justify um, what they did to her? Mm-hmm. It's like just even even if you know not all youth are the same, and then even if they even if they were, it doesn't mean that child abuse should be on the table just because you feel a certain way. It shouldn't be because no. right. So. That's the thing. I had to hung, hang up on a guy because he thought, I don't know, he was bringing up some completely different things.
4: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, I was talking to someone about how this situation, and he was bringing up completely different things, and that's something I get tired of is when right. I talk about serious things, people deflect or they say they understand what you're talking about and they don't understand.
4: Right. It's hard to I mean, educate people, but I'm committed to it. <laughs> that's
0: good.
2: Thank, well, you. I, I yeah. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you, I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for so. not sharing with us. Okay. Oh,
0: Have a good night. You too. Yeah.
2: I'm sorry. I apologize sometimes you know you there's a stall in the
4: <laughs>
2: in the <laughs> line, and so then we're talking over each other. So, um, there's another lady that that called in as well, and that's Judy. So okay. Judy, I am opening your line as well. Did you have something to say to Sylvia?
1: Um, yes. You were talking about disassociation. Hi. Thank you for sharing tonight. Um, you were talking about disassociation, and mm-hmm. um, I don't know how to explain it, but I feel like I'm just... um. I always call myself um and it's the wrong words I know but it's how I I feel like I'm like slow <laughs> a slow learner. I think people look at me and think I'm a lot more aware than I than I really am. Okay. And um when I there's been times when I was a little girl that my dad beat me up pretty bad. And mm-hmm. When I describe it, it's like I'm outside of mm-hmm. you know. It's I'm outside watching it happen. Mm-hmm. Um. But but I noticed I don't. So I don't really know if if I was outside of myself. Although I heard that when children are um, abused, um, that they that they are they go outside of their body. Um, but I noticed that um, throughout my life, like, when some things happen, um, it's like I I, I go into some kind of, and I'm not going to call it a trance, but I'm sitting there and people are talking to me, but I can't even hear them because I'm, like, concentrating so much on something else. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Julie? Sure. I Is that, like that I'm, <laughs> it's I'm a moment I'm sorry. It's a self-protective
4: response, and it probably happened a lot when you were being verbally abused. It, it did with me. My mother would be. I've, I've got a very well-rehearsed blank stare that I can bring on consciously, because mm-hmm. if I showed anything, my mother would accuse me of thinking something I wasn't thinking. So I have this very blank look I know how to do. But as soon as she started the verbal abuse, I blanked out mentally. I was still present. I was still looking at her. Um, I knew she was yelling at me, but I was not concentrating on what she said. So is it kind of like that? Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. Because I remember one time.
4: Yeah, go ahead. And I just understand that to be self-protective. You can only okay. take so much of that before you just say, you know, it's kind of like mentally putting the hand up and saying, talk to the hand. Um, I've heard this line of abuse before. I don't choose to listen now. But I'll act like I am so I don't get knocked to the floor.
1: And I was like you. I never, I was really a good girl. I, I, I didn't want to do anything. To upset my parents, I just wanted to. I wanted them to love me, and okay. I wanted to do everything right. So I, I think that's one of the reasons why I, kind of, um, call myself a slow learner again because it was like I just. I feel like I'm not even making sense right now, but. Um, well, I don't
4: call what you were doing being a slow learner. In my mind, it's being self protective, and that's. Uh That's necessary sometimes. Um, Uh And I will tell you this. I used, even in my 50s, I'm 71, about to be 72 in a couple months. And even into my 50s and early 60s, I would go up to my husband and say, I don't want to be good anymore. Uh And he would say, okay, what do you want to be? I said, I just don't want to be good anymore anymore. I didn't want to break the law. I didn't want to be a nasty person. I didn't want to do bad things, but I didn't want this pressure on my brain of having to be good. And it sounds crazy, but I finally gave that up and I find out I'm just fine. I don't have to go be bad. (laughs) Uh You can just be me. Yeah. But I'm sorry you went through all of that. It's just, it's torture. It's just torture to be, talk to like that.
1: It is, and I'm 68, so I've been, you know, it's like I should, sometimes I feel like I should be over all of this, but I'm not, and I, and like you were talking about triggers too, Mm -hmm. and then I listen to all of you, and we're all such, um, we've all been through so much, and we're so strong, and even though we feel so so weak, and we're shaking in our boots a lot, you know? (laughs) trying yeah. to be brave, but um yeah well thank i appreciate your time thank you so much for what you're doing
4: well thank you and thank you for sharing your story it helps me too
1: it helps me when others share their stories too i don't feel like i'm so you know uh, out of it <laughs> so yeah i'm so alone
4: Yeah. Thank
2: you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing, Judy. And I have to say that I feel that as well. And I feel like I'm, 'cause I'm in my 50s right now. I'm 55, and um, I feel like I've been trying so hard for so long, and it doesn't ever get me anywhere. And everybody mm-hmm. just continues to be bad at me. And so yeah, <laughs> I'm kind of at that place too. I'm like, I, I why am I trying so hard? I mean, I know I want yeah. to have a relationship with my grandkids and stuff, but why does it have to be so hard with my daughters? It shouldn't be, yeah. so, you know. Yeah. So
1: I can. Yeah. I get I, it,
2: too. It sucks.
1: I um, let my
4: children know, and my siblings, that I had written a book and that they were free to read it. But I haven't requested that anyone read it, um, except Tammy, because I wanted to make sure what I said in it about the professional end of things was appropriate, and she is a professional and and could guide me in those ways. But, um, But, yeah, if they don't read it, I've just accepted that all of us know how much we can take. We may not be able to define it, but if they're not ready to learn things about mom that they don't know, I have to respect that. And oh, yeah. in their time, and that's in not, their time yeah. yeah, in their time they will. But they may be seventy two before they do and that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> if they it need hurt. to just I know me as mom right now, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and
2: I kinda have the opposite. That might decided to both of my daughters decided to I have set for seven years because I started doing this kind of work as well. I started working with Darkness to Light. And um, so I've been out teaching classes for the last seven and a half years or so. And so they knew what I was doing. They knew that that was a part of my past. And they knew that I was radio show because I told my story on ASCA first. And then, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they all – so I never really kept all of that a secret. What I said to them seven years ago was the same thing I said to my son. I have two daughters and a son. He's the youngest, but um, he's 25. He's an adult. And um, I said to them, I want to be able to answer any questions or concerns or anything that you have. So what I want is I want you to come to me and let me know when you – are ready to talk about things because I'm not going to just throw it out there. And there was nobody really knew except for my husband, of course, and, and some of the family members, of course, knew what I had gone through, but nobody outside of the family had known. And I had, you know, a big church group and everything. And so I kind of switched platforms and I started going under a maiden name. And so I always kept that door open. And my son, for one, has, has, asked questions from the very beginning. And we've always had a good relationship. And um, But my girl didn't tell me that they wanted to know anymore. And one of them, the oldest, said that she listened to the podcast. But she didn't mm-hmm. say anything to me. And then the other one bought one of the books and didn't say anything to me. And so I learned it from my son. And when I said mm-hmm. to my daughters, you know, I am here if you want to talk about anything. I understand that you guys have heard my story all I get was this big, long view of what a terrible person I am, and I, mm. I don't understand it other than, you know, people keep telling me, well, you're the strong one. I'm like, really? Am I really? Because I don't feel that right now. But, you know, I, I don't understand where I could have done anything different. I think that it is hard to know when you talk to your kids about it. I mean, I talked to my kids about body safety, and, and I even had them take the class. When I first started doing this, but um, it wasn't in t- context to my story. It was just educating them, and so and that's what mm-hmm. I wanted to do all along. But yeah, I, it's it's complicated. I'd love to, <laughs> I'd love to get your your opinion on some things for sure. But um, that's for another time because we are like almost a half an hour left mm-hmm. in our show. So I want to go back to your story. <laughs> stop talking okay. and um, let you finish what you'd like to, to tell
4: us so thank you so well, you know in, in the book there's information on resilience and if you're not familiar with that body of research um, please 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 if you don't have to read my book to find it there's a lot out there even on the internet that's available but what's hopeful about it and I, I really want to transfer this information to as many people as possible. What's hopeful about this research is that way back in the 50s, um, Emmy Werner and several other researchers started noticing that they'd go into a home where all the kids were pretty involved as far as emotional disturbance. And there'd be one just sitting there having a nice day. And Instead of researching what's going wrong, they started getting curious about, so what's going right? Because those of us who are talking tonight have a lot of things going right in our lives. And it wouldn't necessarily be expected under the previous theories about human growth and development. And so what they've found over the decades now of research is that Um, individuals, families, and communities all contain risk factors, things that might lead to dysfunction. And they all contain protective factors, things that might protect a child from dysfunction or, um, you know, moderate the impact of a risk factor and when I began to read all of this, I was like, well, that's cool. Every situation, every person, every family has some of those." And the other thing that was cool is that you don't have to eliminate all the risk factors to help someone. Well, think about that for a minute. You, you meet a kid and you know they're being abused. You don't have to change everything in their lives. There are positive things, protective factors in your relationship with them and in the community that you can tap into, and maybe that will be enough. And to put it back into my own story, at home I felt that I was not good enough, not smart enough, not useful other than to be a caregiver to the younger children and clean house and cook, I was told constantly that I was not going to be allowed to go to college because I was a girl, and I was just going to get married and have babies. Um, You know, it it was pretty bleak, especially after having had a biological father, who no matter what I asked, would answer it thoroughly. Um, I mean, one time I asked how eyes work, and my brother, as little brothers will do, said, open them, stupid. (laughs) But my father said, just a minute, he went and got his camera, took it apart, showed me the lens of the camera and talked about the lens of the eye, talked about the iris and the pupil and what parts of the camera were, functioned in that way. And um, he made me believe because of the way he talked with me and answered my questions that being a girl was not a disability. So... um, Then I get to school, and first of all, I'm well-behaved, and I don't give the teachers any trouble, so that's a plus. But I tended to be very insightful. I tended to learn quickly, Um, and teachers were pretty happy with me, and so I learned at school that I was capable. And again, being a girl was not a disability, So I made up my mind pretty early that I was going to go to college. And um, every time my stepfather, who did adopt me when I was 18, um, and my mother would say, you're a girl, you're not going to college, I wouldn't argue. In my mind, I would just think, one day I'll be grown and you won't be in charge of that. (laughs) And I'd go on with my day. And so, you know how some kids rebel by drinking beer or whatever? My rebellion was not only going to college, but eventually earning a master's and then a doctorate. Let me tell you about girls. (laughs) Oh,
2: that's awesome.
4: So I had, obviously, risk factors. And I don't deny them. And they were painful, and they did damage. I don't know who I would be now had I not had them, because I spent so many years feeling inadequate and like I just, well, I used to call it the bottomless pit of despair. I just felt like I wasn't good enough, no matter what I did. But within that realm, I also had teachers who said, you can do whatever you want. And guidance counselors at school who said, You can do whatever you want. And so I had two worlds, one foot in each. And those teachers who befriended me, who encouraged me, made a huge difference. And I'll tell you, this is in the book. But my mother died when I was a senior, and the teachers knew I wanted to go to college. So they took up a collection And they gave me enough money to go to my first semester of college. It was a local junior college. And I was there a semester when two professors adopted me and made it possible for me to finish my first two years. Um, And then after that, I went to junior and senior year at the university but I had to agree to be legally emancipated, which meant I got no money except for whatever I got from the loan. And I only had $5 a week for food. But I was determined. <laughs> and back then you could get seven cans of candle soup for less than $5. <laughs> and that's what I lived on. But read the resilience literature. It's powerful. It's hopeful. Um, you can do your own little graph and write down what your risk and protective factors are. And knowing that you don't have to get rid of all the risk factors to do well, circle the protective factors that are sustaining you, and that you might even be able to build upon. Uh-huh. Can you tell us, again,
2: where do you find that?
4: Like I said, there's a section on it in my book. But if you just go to Google and type in the word resilience, literature or research, um, you'll get all kinds of articles. And on my website, sylviarockwell.com, I have a handout on resilience. And there's even a chart for Mapping out your own risk and protective factors, and that's free. <laughs> the Thank
2: you. Why did I ask? Um. Why did your dad, your stepdad, adopt you at 18? How did that all come about?
4: Um. My mother died in February of my senior year. And in May, I graduated, and um I was faced with a decision I either had to go live with my biological father, which I desperately wanted to do um, or stay with the kids and I had been the only female other than mother who had ever taken care of them and I was the primary caregiver particularly during the week so um, plus my stepfather was grieving the loss of his wife and having trouble with alcohol and would often be passed out on the floor by 8pm and there was no way I was going to leave a 7 and 8 year old in that situation I just couldn't so I made it clear that I didn't want to be adopted, but I was told I had to be adopted if I stayed. Um, and I am presently trying to get my original birth certificate back because when you're adopted, even at the age of 18 in Florida, they close your, they seal your uh, records. And there is nothing about my father or my true birth parent situation other than my mother uh, on my the only birth certificate I have access to now and I find that to be very painful it's like nobody has the right to erase my history at age 18 that's bizarre (laughs) yeah absolutely that is I've got a lawyer and Uh, I'm trying to go through the courts to get my real one back
2: Wow. Yeah, I didn't know that you could do that, but I, yeah, I guess there's got to be a way to do all of that. Um, i I was adopted when I was by my stepdad, but yeah. I'll, I'll keep yeah. thinking about you. You have to keep us updated on how that goes. But, um, Thank you. Yeah, I was adopted too I, when I was like 12. Yeah.
4: And during that time, he was also sexually abusing
2: me, so it was like, it was so confusing. Oh.
4: That's so awful and and okay. to take your name away at that age, I mean, I don't think people understand that you don't want to take another name on, and particularly when you have to lie about who your real mother is, um, yeah, I felt such guilt, but um, yeah, absolutely,
2: well, you took all the the burden.
4: You just tried to take it all, and well, sorry. Here's that's how it felt, and that's <laughs> yeah. I felt like my my parents were trying to cover up mistakes they had made, um, and that if it wasn't for me, they wouldn't have to try to cover it up. That the fact that I was alive was the problem, and um, you don't need eight- and nine-year-olds thinking like that.
2: No, that's not good. When you do anything for your self-esteem as you're getting older. And when you need it the most. I don't know. You right. into puberty and all that.
4: <laughs> right. Sorry. Well, and, and one of the ways I cope, which isn't necessarily healthy, but it's better than other things I could have done, Um, was I decided I was going to learn everything I could learn. That if I knew how to do lots of things, that maybe I would be worthy somehow. So I became an overachiever just to try to feel normal, useful. (laughs) everything okay? Do
2: you? Yes. You should, oh, yeah, I don't know who's, who's making that noise. Charlotte. Sounds like something um, fell down. Yeah, somebody's <laughs> somebody's working in the kitchen, sounds um, like. Um, you know, I just, let's see here. It's Penelope. I,
3: Penelope? I've i been on you, but I just put another um, caller back on um, listen-only mode. Oh, that okay. may have been it. So anyway, I think we're okay. Yeah. didn't mean to interject.
2: No, no, that's fine. Okay. Did you have anything you want to say since we're getting down to the last
3: few minutes?
1: Or have any last questions? Actually,
3: <laughs> uh, I, I do for Sylvia. This is Penelope again. So I went and looked on your website um, and on your bio and I'm curious, are you still in near the Hillsborough School District in Florida?
4: No, and we actually moved north, uh, to a uh, Northwest Florida District, and I'm retired now, so I'm not... Okay, okay. Yeah, I'm in
3: Sarasota. I'm in actually Sarasota, Florida, so I was wondering if we were close by.
4: Oh, cool. Yeah, I have a son and daughter-in-law and two grandchildren, three grandchildren, who live in uh, Pasco County, and another grandson who lives in Pinellas County, Um, but we decided it was too hot and too crowded down there. (laughs) Yeah.
3: (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah, not too far away. I'm not too far away. Yeah. Um, But I, no, I really don't, um, I just, I I think it's been a great, great show. I know we've got, you know, 12 minutes left, Kim and Sylvia, um, but I I think it's been a really great show. Um, We had a lot of really good discussion. And I, I think, you know, the topic, too, of, um, of dissociation, which I appreciate, and, and I know in, in your research, um, Sylvia, and in, in, in my own personal experience and my own, um, you know, private research on being curious about the link between learning disabilities and dissociation, um, I know that there is um, there is um, a link there. Um, I know that there's been a lot of work done on um, children um, who were um, subjected to um, Childhood abuse um, and learning disabilities in the schools, and I think a lot of times when we're in a state of dissociation, um, they can look like learning disabilities um, as well. Mm -hmm. So I know Judy called in, and and, um, I want to say that I always thought I was also a slow learner or I had a hard time at reading comprehension, but I believe Mm -hmm. a lot of it was from um, being, you know, dissociation and being an abused child. So. I just appreciate the conversation, and I I think I wish there was more information out there about it. I think you have to really scrub to find it. Um,
4: um, so I'm glad you do. And there's it. still yeah, there's still so much research being done um, on not just abuse, but on brain development and all of those things. I, I know that abuse can play havoc with executive functioning. Um, all kinds of things. And then if a the child has ADHD on top of it, it really gets complicated. So mm-hmm. thank you for bringing that up. It's it's something teachers need to be more aware of, I believe. I agree. And doctors. <laughs> and doctors. Well, can I just interject something? I found this book by Nadine Burke Harris. She's an M.D., And it's called The Deepest Well, healing the Long-Term Effects of Childhood Adversity. And she's talking about the adverse um, childhood experiences, the ACEs. But it Mm -hmm. is all entwined with what we're discussing tonight. She actually was able to um, establish a center where physicians, teachers, after-school enrichment... Um, everyone was involved in a child's plan with the adversity and the resilience research intertwined. So everyone knew, you know. There were nutritionists, there were doctors, there were therapists, educators, after school enrichment opportunities and the progress she was able to make so I think physicians need to know it as much as teachers and others.
3: Wasn't um, she the, um, or isn't she? Wasn't she she the California Surgeon General who wanted to actually, you know, mandate a trauma? Um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, an assessment, a trauma assessment when children went into the pediatrician.
4: Is this the same? Absolutely. Detonating- yeah right. yeah he's amazing yeah and i wish I wish that were nationwide um I it agree. just makes so much sense because the earlier we begin to address it the the better the outcomes in general um, in fact, you know we know that kids decide to drop out of school as early as the third grade, and these are kids wow. who have experience trauma and abuse. Wait, you know, I I was talking to the Rotary Club locally a couple months ago, and I said, they're all involved in um, stopping drug abuse with teens. And I said, that's too late. That's Mm -hmm. too late. Because Mm -hmm. one of the biggest risk factors is abuse. And that needs to be addressed early, early, early. <laughs> you know. They they decide to drop out of school, they decide to um get involved with things that they shouldn't. and we we see the older kids, so people wanna address the older kids. No. It does not start there. Um and getting people to understand that. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I have a passion for this. I will talk to anyone who will sit still long enough. <laughs> I would like sometimes to be one of those annoying people with a megaphone on the street corner, you know. But Absolutely. I think.
1: Yeah.
4: That I can
3: understand. Yeah. Well, we need more people like you. Yeah. <laughs> Well,
4: I with the megaphone. I, want to tell one story before time runs out and it's about a little yeah. girl that I was with if, if that's okay do we have time? Sure, um,
2: yeah.
4: I'm using a pseudonym um, to protect the guilty uh her mother but we'll just call her Sarah and she came to me I was working as a behavior coach in an inner city school and I was coaching teachers on how to respond to behaviors and that sort of thing. But I also would take kids on their lunch break and work with them. They'd bring their lunch in my office and we would have little social skills groups and that sort of thing. But anyway, Sarah enrolled in the school a month or so after school started because her mother had been doing what she had to do to get her two daughters back. They had been removed for abuse. And I guess she finally finished the mandated courses. And Sarah was seven, and in first grade, her sister was a preschooler. And this mother would, I mean, the very first time I met her, she's standing there with both little girls, and she goes, Sarah's the bad one. This is the good one. Anna's the good one. And I'm like, well, this isn't a good start. But anyway, Sarah would have these huge meltdowns two to three times a week that would last 20 to 40 minutes. And um, I often had to, was called in to get her because She couldn't stay in the classroom. She was throwing furniture and books and screaming. One day, we had a plan for her and blessed the principal because I did not want her put in special classes. I said, no, (laughs) no, no, no. Let me work with her. Give me three months. So he's like, okay. But one day I'm working with her because she had one of her fits. And she started screaming, I'm so bad, nobody loves me, God doesn't even love me. (laughs) And we were, we had her in a therapeutic hold because she had been trying to bust her head open on a brick wall and um, I signaled to the others, the other two, we never did it alone and we used safe practices. But I signaled to the other two to let her let go over her feet. And I sat her up and I said, Look at me and she's sobbing and snot and tears are coming down her face and I said, Look at me And she finally did and stopped crying enough for that she could hear me and I said, What you said is not true. I love you. And God loves you. And people say, you can't say that in a public school. And I said, well, I did. She brought up God, so it was okay to say God. Um, The social worker turned her around and told her the same thing. The um, guidance counselor turned her around and told her the same thing. And it was a turning point for her. She pushed her back up against the wall, didn't bang her head, And we handed her tissues, and she got herself together. Uh, But I will tell you this. Months later, when she was doing really well, and I was just doing a follow-up with her, she didn't end up having to go to special classes. She uh, did end up in the gifted program. And we did a risk and protective factor assessment on her uh, from the resilience literature. And that's how we set up her plan, But um, all of the teachers wore crosses. It wasn't a Christian school, but we just had a lot of people there who wore crosses. And um, we were playing checkers, and she said, look, there's a cross. And I said, yeah, it is. And I went on to move my checker, and she goes, no, look, there's a cross. And I said, you want to talk about that? (laughs) And she said, yes. And I said, okay. Okay. What do you want to talk about? And she said, "Well, what does it mean? I see it on buildings, but I don't know what it means." And I said, "Well, it's a Christian symbol, and it means love." <laughs> and she sat back for a few minutes, and then she looked at me and she said, "Yes." Mm-hmm. I think so too. And we went on playing checkers, but here's here's the point of the story. She had lots of risk factors in her life, no doubt. She was also very bright, and she had professionals who loved her to the minute back. And the good news is mom quit hating me (laughs) because I wanted to help her daughter, and she said she doesn't deserve it. And I said, well, that's where we don't agree. (laughs) And... um, Gosh. Went and complained yeah. the principal about me, and he came in and he said that mother doesn't respect you. And I said I'm okay with that, but um, I don't know how you do that. Was, <laughs> she ends yeah. up, she ends up in the gifted program, and I had a chance to talk to her mother several years later. Still, of course, in the gifted program, doing very well, um, and mom took a note from what we were doing with her and set up a little plan at home for both her daughters. Totally changed mom. She didn't even believe in telling her daughters thank you. So, so you know, but it can.
2: (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Sylvia. We're down to the last couple seconds here. So I'm going to real quick just say we're so thankful that you're on with us tonight. Thank you. And come back even time. We'd love to have you back.
1: Whenever you. you're
2: available. Yeah, so we are um, technically off the air now. It kind of cuts off right at 7.30. Um, oh, okay. I didn't so even I
4: know, know what it
2: so. Yeah, no, it just cut us straight off, but that's okay. Um, I just I wanted to, you know, to let you know that we do appreciate you and, and that you are a part of the NASCA family now. So we want you to, oh. you know, be around as much as you'd like to be. We'd love to have you. And you can interject any of your wisdom into our shows. Monday through Friday, anytime. we
1: <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Yeah. yeah.
4: This was the first time I've done something like this with no one else in the room, so I appreciate your patience and your professionalism and, and your help.
2: Well, thank that was you. wonderful. It was a lot. Yeah. It, it was. was. You did awesome. Okay. I know it would be, but <laughs> I, yeah. I'm going to get your book. So you have a great evening and thank you again. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Good
4: night. Good
0: night.